0: Good evening and welcome to Noahide Nation's class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor. It is Sunday, May 23rd, and we are starting with Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 18. Proverbs 13, verse 18, and the verse reads Poverty and disgrace is he who removes Musser, and he who guards Musser will be honored. Poverty and disgrace is he who removes musser, and he who guards musser will be honored. Now, in the second half of the verse, the word musser is tahacha in Hebrew. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz, in uh, working through this verse, uh, applied the English word musser to uh, the words used in both the first half and the second half. So, as we always do, let's start by asking ourselves: What are the questions? What questions would we be asking ourselves, or should we ask ourselves, about this verse that we need to answer in order to understand what it is that King Solomon is trying to teach us? Poverty and disgrace is he who removes Musser, and he who guards Musser will be honored. Any thoughts on questions? Okay, thanks Naomi. What type of discipline should we have in order to defy this? Okay, good. And a couple of questions I might add to that. In the first half it says, poverty and disgrace is he who removes Musser. What does it mean to remove Musser? And how is that connected with poverty and disgrace? And in the second half, why did, what does it mean to guard Musser? And why will one who guards Musr be honored? Uh, Okay, and you've asked the question what do both of these have to do with discipline? Okay, and I think we'll see that uh, as we we unfold this. So let's look at that first part Poverty and disgrace is he who removes Musr. If a person removes Musr, then they must not think that it's important. Now, we've talked before that Musser is the science of the consequences of your actions. It's it's the, the study and the analysis and the understanding of what happens when you do stuff or don't do stuff, the consequences of what you do. Now, if a person thinks that studying the consequences of their actions is unimportant, if they look down on it, so what will happen to them they'll ignore it they'll make mistakes and those mistakes will impact the results that they experience in the physical world and in their own reputation so the person who removes Musser who doesn't think it's important who doesn't want to pay attention to it is bound to make mistakes in life and those mistakes will result in things that will impact them uh, both materially and in the eyes of other people and so they will end up with both poverty and disgrace Uh, a person who doesn't think through a business deal well who just runs out and invests his money in the first thing that comes along without finding out whether it's a good business opportunity or a swindle that person is likely to end up losing their money and end up in poverty and further the fact that they are operating foolishly by not thinking about the consequences of their actions other people will see that and so that will cause them to uh, potentially be in a disgraced type of situation so the first half of the verse is telling us some of the consequences of the life of a person who is not willing to accept counsel regarding the consequences of his or her actions now by contrast the person who guards Musser and to guard it worse uh, I would say that means a person who values it and carefully looks at and guards its lessons meaning they take those lessons to heart and they inculcate them into their life that person Is going to be honored and why will they be honored because he or she will make decisions that result in positive consequences and positive end results if they're studying the consequences of their actions then uh, then they're they're going to be making wiser decisions than a person who doesn't study the consequences of their actions and as we've discovered in our studies so far, the science of the consequences of your life isn't just about you. It's about seeing consequences that affect not only you, but that affect others. So, studying that whole science expands your view of life. And so, as you act, you act not only on the basis of the consequences that affect you, but you see how the actions that you undertake affect other people as well. And so other people will see both the wisdom of your decisions and the fact that you take into account a view that encompasses others besides yourself and people respect that they respect people that take you know a wide view and are not totally self-centered and so that can lead to the honor that's discussed in the second half so the verse is talking about the consequences of how you relate to Musser how you relate to the study of the science of consequences poverty and disgrace comes about if you remove that study if you remove Musser from your life while guarding Musser brings honor any questions about that verse So let's then move on to Proverbs chapter 13, verse 19. And before we go on, Naomi, you made the comment, even this can be due to spiritual discipline. Yeah, the study of Musser is a discipline. The study of the consequences of your actions is a discipline. And it's a discipline to follow through on it. First of all, to you know, push yourself to look at it. And then to make changes on that basis. We've talked before that wisdom is the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. And that's a discipline because you basically have to often give up a short term goal for a long, longer term goal. A person who wants to lose weight. Uh, may have to if they are in the habit of eating a big bowl of ice cream every night after dinner they may have to give up that short-term pleasure in order to get the long-term consequence of uh, losing weight uh, or a person who uh, struggles uh, with needing to exercise may have to discipline themselves to do that exercise in order to get the health benefits of exercise that they really want. So. Following Musser and studying that is a discipline, uh, but one that, as we've seen in our study of Proverbs, is well worth the effort and provides huge dividends. Okay, any other comments on that? So, moving on to Proverbs chapter 13, verse 19, and the verse reads, A desire broken is sweet to the soul and it is abomination to the fool to turn away from evil. A desire broken is sweet to the soul, and it is abomination to the fool to turn away from evil. So, what questions should we be asking about that? Okay, Naomi, good. What type of desire? Yeah, when it says a desire broken, well, what desire? I mean, we all have desires. And how is it broken? And from whom is it broken? Very good questions. And I might extend that and say, and why is that sweet to the soul? You know, what, What's that about? And then, interestingly, in the second half, it's uh, it's telling us, it is abomination to the fool to turn away from evil. Well, why is that? So... Let's see if we can pull some, uh, some understanding and explore those questions a little bit. Everyone has desires. We've talked about before about how you have two things in life, your emotions and your intellect. And a huge theme of the book of Proverbs is which one of those are you going to use to make your decisions in life? Okay. Okay. Now, when you use your intellect to overcome a desire, say something that's bad for you, but you really, really want it, you've overcome that desire, or you've broken it. So let's say that um, uh, a, a person is, um, oh, I don't know, uh Attracted to a particular food or substance that he knows is not good for him, for whatever reason. And he he his his you know his emotions want that thing, whatever it is, but his intellect says, oh, that's not good for you. And he is able to overcome his desire by virtue of his intellect. In other words, he makes the decision on the basis of intellect. Yeah, I know, I'd really like that, but I know it's not good for me, so I'm not going to do that. That is a sweet thing to your soul because you have conquered your Yitzhahara, your desire to do something that is not good for you, the desire to follow your emotions. And to know that you can conquer the Yitzhahara is a sweet thing. By contrast, when you feel like a failure, when you give in to that, then you look down on yourself. And it's a very discomforting thing uh, to your soul. Now, by contrast, for the fool who operates from his emotions, it's an abomination, a horrible thing for him to turn away from that desire. Because that desire is his main goal. He doesn't see why he would want to turn away from it. He's not thinking, well, that's not really good for me. I shouldn't have that thing. All he's focused on is the desire to have it. So the fool doesn't have that sweetness of conquering his yitz his evil inclination. Rather, he's controlled by it. Okay? And Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out there's a certain view you have of who you are and what you are, and that's, that's your self-image. And giving in to a desire is not worth giving up your view of yourself. You know, you, you may want to have a self-image of someone who's in control, who makes good decisions and so forth. And so you don't want to give in to that emotional desire because you want to be able to see yourself as a person who does operate from their intellect and is in control. Now, a bad self-image is a situation where my goals are so high that I can't reach them. Uh, and additionally, if I'm in a situation where I don't live up to reality, that can create a bad self-image. And the only way out of that is to recognize reality and accept yourself for who and what you are and what you can do and what you can't do in reality. So it's very important to be realistic with yourself you can never really accomplish a fantasy uh, the demand of the of the conscience is constant that's why people sometimes interestingly um, get depressed when they retire uh, because uh, they you know they they've had a certain fantasy and reality starts to step in and You know, it could be that some people should never retire uh, because of that. So what we have to do is work, if we have an incorrect motive, to work on that incorrect motive. Maybe it's a drive that keeps me working or keeps me in competition. And if I know that that's what drives me, then I work with that. Okay. Okay. You know, I accept that I'm competitive in business and instead of saying, well, no, I shouldn't be competitive in business, I accept, okay, that's who I am. I I accept my reality at that moment and then I can work from that. Uh, And when you get wisdom, then you start to get a desire for wisdom itself. And you see the value and benefits of these ideas and that this this is the only real life and slowly I'll replace my old motives with my new motives, but I can't just jump there. I can't say, well, you know, that I really operate on the basis of of competition, but I really should operate on the basis of wisdom, so I'll pretend. You can't skip steps in this process. So you have to accept where you are and work from that and just keep going over and over and over the real ideas and slowly the real ideas can start to take over uh, in your life and start replacing uh, the old motives that you have. So we can't make jumps, we have to get there naturally. Okay, let me pause for questions. Uh, okay, so, uh, and, uh, Eva, you've, you've said you'd appreciate some more illustrations of how to resist the Yitzhak hurrah. The best way I know of. To resist the it's or hurrah, I guess I'll suggest two possibilities. When the it's or hurrah, your evil inclination is wanting you to do something, the f- one way is if you can, depending on what your situation is, if you can immediately shift your situation or your focus to something completely different. So let's say, for example, that I am uh, diabetic and I can't have ice cream. And I really love ice cream, but I can't have it, okay? And somehow I'm walking down the street and I walk by an ice cream store and there it is and they got umpteen flavors in the window and, you know, I can almost smell it coming out of the doorway. Uh, Probably the most immediate thing I can do is to get myself physically out of that situation and, and move my focus over to the clothing store across the street or the electronics store or the the, uh, the the coffee shop that I'm moving to to have a cup of coffee with my friend or wherever I'm going, but to focus my attention on something else, it's much easier to focus your attention on something else than it is to stop focusing your attention on something that you don't want to. Uh, for example, if uh, you know, try not thinking about pink elephants, and of course when you when you're told well don't think about pink elephants what's the first thing that pops into your mind Oh, pink elephant but if I'm saying don't think about pink elephants and then I say uh, think about Antarctica well your mind goes probably to this picture of you know ice and snow and whatever and by focusing on Antarctica the pink elephants left so it's easier to focus on something that you want to focus on than it is to try to wrestle your focus away from something else. The other way to uh, battle the itzer hurrah is to keep going over and over the correct ideas in your mind. So for example, I'm walking by the ice cream store and I really want the ice cream and I know I can't have it so what I what I could do at that point is to go over and over the ideas about why I can't have ice cream. Look, I know I'm diabetic if I eat that ice cream it will cause a blood sugar insulin reaction from me which will make me feel very sick and I will end up you know on the floor in my house feeling awful or worse I will have to be taken by ambulance to the hospital and that is not a good situation for me and I keep going over and over the rational ideas of what is good for me and what is not good for me uh, until those ideas start to become clear to my mind. And I may have to go over those ideas many, many, many times uh, before uh, they start to, um, you know, have an impact. But slowly but surely, they can And that's why the concept of review is so very important uh, in this realm. Um, That review allows us uh, to go over the ideas each time as if they're fresh. And uh, by doing that, the ideas start to become real to us. There's a story about one of the philosophers, I think it might have been Spinoza, uh, but I'm not sure which, um, who I understand had to make a decision early on in life about, you know, should he go down the road of studying philosophy or should he go down the road of, of making money? and he did an analysis in his mind and decided that it was a better life decision to study philosophy so he sat down to study philosophy and the first thing that popped into his mind was you really ought to be out there in business and so he went over the ideas again of why the pros and cons of each uh, as I understand it and why he concluded that studying philosophy was better next day he sits down to study philosophy and the same thing pops into his mind. You really ought to be out there in business, you know, you may make lots of money or something like that. So he we went over and over the ideas again of yes, I looked at all the pros and cons and here they are all are again and here's why I reached the conclusion that it's better to study philosophy. Well, he kept doing that for a number of days and pretty soon those thoughts stopped coming into his mind because the ideas presumably had become so clear to him as to why he had decided to study philosophy that his his emotions didn't yap at him anymore about that if I can put it in those terms Eva you've said sometimes you say stop it and quote Torah yeah that can be very effective uh, you know, quote a, a, a section of Torah to yourself uh, and, and then if you can look at some of the reasons why that thing will not be good for you so that you can reinforce in your mind uh, you know, why that's not a good uh, way to, uh, to go and, uh, as you say, psalms can help, prayers can help. Uh, all of those are, uh, are good methodologies. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions about that? Okay. Let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20. And this verse reads, He who walks with the wise will become wise, and he who is friendly with fools will be broken. He who walks with the wise will become wise, and he who is friendly with fools will be broken. So what do you think? What are the questions here? And and Naomi, you've asked, how can we walk with the wise and how can we grow wise? So, good questions. And, And we could ask ourselves, well, why does one who walks with the wise become wise? I mean, that's what the first half is saying. Well, why does that work and how does that work? And why will a person who becomes friendly with fools be broken? So, I'll suggest that there is a single theme to this verse. And it's this the people around you affect you or said a different way who you hang out with makes a difference if you hang around with the wise you hear wisdom and you hear ideas and you hear hear analysis so that has an effect on you it can cause you to start adopting those traits And that can affect the way that you run your life. And it can also affect the results that you get. So as you absorb their ideas, you become wise because those ideas begin to affect you. I mean, imagine if you hung around uh, a synagogue or a shul or a house of study every day and you're listening to scholars discuss... uh, points of Torah and consequences and analysis and logic and why one idea leads to the next and so on and so forth. So imagine the difference between hanging around with those people and having that kind of input all the time versus hanging around with a bunch of people who say are talking about um, uh, gambling. the latest drunk party they went to, um, and how they can swindle other people out of money. I mean, just just that input every day for hours and hours is going to have uh, an impact one way or the other. So hanging around with the wise, those ideas begin to affect you. But by contrast, hanging around with fools also has an effect. You pick up foolish ideas, and it can cause your own thinking to move toward that foolish direction. And that can cause you to make poor decisions. And ultimately, you can become broken by this. That is, you'll get consequences that are harmful and that can ultimately destroy you. Now, there's a very subtle difference here. Um, and l- let me pause first and, and uh, check comments on screen. Um, uh, yes, Eva, it is v- very difficult to avoid Lashon Hara. Uh, you just about have to take, in fact, you do. You need to take active steps uh, against Lashon Hara. I mean, one is you can just move away from the conversation and leave, uh, the other is to challenge the per- people that are, you know, uh, that are saying it uh, one a, a very interesting and potentially effective question in doing that when somebody starts to tell you you know a piece of les on her to ask them why are you telling me this um, and uh, and go from there so you're right it's very difficult and uh, takes very active and strong energy to uh, to fight back against that Um Naomi, you've asked, the companion uh, is shown as plural and the wise is shown as singular. It says, he who walks with the wise, I'm not sure there whether, and I would have to double check the Hebrew, whether the word wise in that context, the way it's translated in the English, means wise people or a single wise person, uh, as opposed to um To fools so there might be a point there I'm not um, I'm not sure uh, uh, if, if there's an intended meaning behind that but there is one interesting difference between in addition to what we've discussed already between the first half of the verse and the second half of the verse and can you spot what that is here's what I'm getting at. in the first half of the verse it talks about walking with the wise he who walks with the wise will become wise while the second half of the verse talks about being friendly with fools so what's the difference between those I'll suggest that walking means you're spending time with them it's not just an encounter but there's some level of commitment to be with them for a more than casual length of time. And Naomi, you've said, yeah, it's, it's uh, well, uh, well Evie, you said walking is continuous. Uh, and yes, Naomi, you've uh, said is, is presently continuous or presently continuous. You're both right. It's, there's, there's a sense of more than just exposure here. It's some level of commitment to be with them uh, over a lengthy period of time. And over that time, their ideas can affect you. On the other hand, just becoming friendly with a fool can have a negative effect. It doesn't necessarily have to be such an extended time. And I'm suggesting here the possibility that the negative can affect you more easily than the positive. To become wise, it takes more than just being friendly with the wise. You need to walk with them. That is, you need to be involved and committed at some level. While a more casual exposure to foolish ideas can negatively affect a person's thinking. So people, I would say, underestimate how much the people around them affect them. As Rabbi Moskowitz said, this is a big factor. You have to be careful who you hang around with because those people can have a significant impact on you. Okay, any questions about that? Eva, you said evil talk is contagious. Absolutely it is. You know, you end up with a crowd of people sitting around having a meal or something, and one person says something that's maybe Lashon Hara, and another person picks up on it, and pretty soon you can have an entire group doing that. So uh, it, it can be very contagious, and you have to sort of forever be on guard uh, about that. And Naomi, yes, it, it does take effort and time to be with the wise. You have to first seek out and find out where those people are and where they hang out and then how you can get around them uh, and be with them i've i've had the good fortune to uh, be around some people in my life who uh, i think are incredibly wise and i just i wanted to like camp out at their feet and just be with them all the time to hear how they think and talk about everything because you can see that torah mindset in them that years and years of training of the mind uh, and so how you know what comes out of their mouth is well thought through and you, I just want to absorb it like you know like a desert wants to absorb water so um, it it does take time and effort but it is well worth the investment of time uh, to be able to hang around those people okay any questions on that verse And Naomi, thank you. We we grow wise. You wrote, "Had we not attended, we could not uh, even have learned this too." And and I feel the same way about my uh, my teachers. Had had I not had the good fortune to, um, you know, be able to get together with them, uh, I, I would not have been able to learn this. So um, very very grateful to them. A uh, number of very special people who've given their time for. Uh, us non-Jewish folks uh, for many many years thank you for that okay any other questions okay okay let's move on to Proverbs chapter 13 verse 21 and this verse reads Sins pursue evil people and the righteous are rewarded or paid with good. Sins pursue evil people and the righteous are rewarded with good or paid with good. So what are the questions here? The right to sins pursue evil people and the righteous are paid with good what kind of questions come to mind as we look at that verse okay so Naomi is suggesting what type of sins pursue the evil people and how are the righteous rewarded and what are they rewarded for okay good and I might add what does it mean that sins pursue evil people how does that work uh, seems like an interesting thing for King Solomon to have said so Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say, when you do something evil, there has to be a motive behind it. And as you give in to that motive, which we've discussed before would be, you know, emotional desires and fantasy desires and so forth. When you give in to that motive, that motive grows. And as that motive grows, that strengthens the desire. And it becomes greater and greater so a person sins and that strengthens the motive to sin and the desire associated with that and so that desire becomes more and more so in that way sins pursue evil people that is the more that you sin the stronger the motive for sin becomes the stronger the desire come, becomes and so you want to do it more uh, so the sins are actually in a sense chasing after the evil people because of the choices that they've made now for the righteous person Rabbi Moskowitz said it's not the act but the thought about it so when you develop on that level with that type of thinking then that type of thinking becomes natural for you in other words you 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 think about things you are analyzing things and you th- the more you do that then that process of thinking through things becomes natural for you you have to think things through more and more so over time the righteous person is repaid for good And the reward is that you'll always think things through, and that will also prevent consequences. So thinking things through ultimately changes who you are. So the righteous are rewarded or paid with good because they're operating in accordance with reality, and they're learning by virtue of doing righteous things. They're reinforcing and making natural that thinking process that leads them to positive consequences. So, the verse is talking about, uh, essentially, what you do reinforces itself uh, in your own life. So, if you do sinful things, then that's reinforcing that desire, makes it grow stronger, and sins then, essentially, pursue you because your desire for those things becomes stronger and stronger. By this, uh, and and at the same time, the righteous are thinking about things, and so they're developing that type of thinking. So it becomes natural to them, and they end up being uh, repaid uh, with good, and good being in twofold that they're they're learning to think things through. So they're developing that as the natural way that they operate, and that also. Helps them avoid negative consequences and helps produce good consequences. Uh, And so they are essentially paid with good. Okay? Does this make sense? And are there any questions? So let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. And this verse reads A good person will cause his grandchildren to inherit and the wealth of sinners is hidden, or protected, for the tzaddik, the righteous person. A good person will cause his grandchildren to inherit, and the wealth of sinners is protected for the tzaddik, for the righteous. So, what kind of questions does that prompt? Okay, so, Eva, you're asking kind of what kind of an inheritance, and you're asking, is it a spiritual inheritance? And Naomi, uh, you're asking, why grandchildren, why not the children? Very good questions. Okay. I'd add to that, what's a good person in this context? Uh, And then, how is the wealth of sinners protected or hidden for the righteous? So, Let's start with the definition of a good person. And I'll suggest that a good person in this context would be someone who is thinking about others, in this case, his grandchildren. His life is not centered around himself, but he's thinking about the bigger picture and the long-term consequences of his actions. And by doing so, he plans ahead so that his grandchildren have something, presumably positive, that they can inherit now we could think of that in terms of a number of different things we could think of it in terms of money okay that a person plans his estate so that he has financial holdings to pass on to his grandchildren he could pass along that wealth directly in which case he would need to plan his financial matters with a multi-generational outlook or it could be that it's the good person's children who manage their affairs so that their children have something to inherit in that case the verse suggests that the good person taught his children well and as a result of that his grandchildren will inherit something worthwhile from their parents so we have got a couple possibilities there uh, alternatively It could be that the inheritance has to do with wisdom and knowledge. And I'll suggest that in this case, the same process applies. The good person either, A, spends time with his children and teaches them the way of Torah, teaches them wisdom and knowledge and insight, and then those children teach their children so that the good person's grandchildren end up inheriting this from their own parents, or the good person spends time directly with the grandchildren in order to positively influence their growth so that they see and come to love the world of ideas and wisdom and insight. Okay? So, any questions so far about the first half? Okay, and Naomi, you've asked, how can it be um, that the wealth of sinners is secreted to the righteous person? Uh, can, can a righteous person take sinners wealth so let's let's talk about that now in the second half and let's see if we can figure out how these two halves work together the second half of the verse says the wealth of sinners is hidden or protected for the righteous so how can that work well one possibility would be this as we've discussed before sinners are bound to make mistakes why because they don't operate in the world of reality they operate in the world of fantasy they're trying to satisfy their emotional desires so they are going to make mistakes and those mistakes from a financial standpoint will eventually lead to the loss of their wealth the righteous by contrast operate in accordance with the world of ideas and the world of reality so they will be in a position to acquire the wealth that is lost by the sinners through the sinners errors so in that sense the wealth of sinners is hidden for the righteous That is, it's being held by the sinner who thinks that it's his permanently and will eventually wind up in the hands of the righteous okay And uh, I apologize for the noise level. I think that's a a fan that just turned on in my computer. So, from this standpoint, what's the verse telling us overall? What's the subject? I'll suggest that the verse is talking about long-term consequences. It's showing us how the person who focuses on the good... Has positive multi-generational results from his actions, while the wealth that a sinner has will eventually be lost to the righteous. Interestingly, in commenting on this verse, Rashi refers to the case of Esther. You remember the story of the book of, in the book of Esther. Esther ended up giving Mordecai, the righteous man, the house of Haman, the wicked man. And that is the law of Hashkacha Pratis, God's personal supervision. We see that Mordecai ended up with positive multi-generational consequences. So he's essentially in the first half of that verse. While Haman ended up with his house and his wealth going to Mordecai. Okay, any questions on this verse okay in that case we will stop here for the night and I thank you all very much for joining and hope you'll join us next time